Hello, hello, hello. Just wanted to issue a quick disclaimer. I have a new microphone which I positioned closer to my mouth than I have um, in recording in the past because in the past I've just been using my phone and have kind of propped it up next to me. Um, so I have a microphone <laughs> that is closer than I am used to. And because of that, when I get excited I tend to like move around and wrestle around um and in that process you might hear just a little bit of rustling because of how again close <laughs> the microphone is to me I apologize wanted to give you a heads up um but I hope you listen anyways okay all right I love you since we've had a good old chat. Um, Welcome. Hi. Hello. Today is the first day of Black History Month and I'm quite excited. I, if you don't know, also run, I don't know quite what to call it. Como se dice? I'm the director, I guess we can go with, of Lost History, which is essentially a project that I have that's dedicated to making marginalized history mainstream. Um, I will link all of the lost history links down below. But, um, obviously, what I'm trying to say is I'm bridging model student with lost history. And for this month, every podcast episode will be dedicated to an influential black person in fashion. Um, so I'm quite excited. And one last order of business, I before we get in, because I'm so excited, I'm also selling um, pieces of clothing that I've embroidered on my Depop, which I will also link down below. And I will be donating 20% of proceeds to the Loveland Foundation, which is um, a nonprofit that is committed to showing up for communities of color in unique and powerful ways with a particular focus on black women and girls. So it's something, I mean, mental health is something that I feel passionate about, sharing um, history that is often silenced is something that I'm passionate about, and fashion is something that I'm passionate about. So it's kind of just the best of every world here. So thank you for being here with me. So before we get into the person that we'll be talking about today, I thought it would be a little bit lovely, a little bit educational, a little bit helpful, all of the above to take a moment to discuss what Black History Month is, the origin, the significance, etc. Um, I will be reading from the Lost History newsletter, which will be linked down below, and which is also written by yours truly. So, let's begin. Um, as the name suggests, Black History Month is a time to acknowledge and celebrate Black excellence. It is an acknowledgement of the past and the central role that Black people have played in history. It begins at the start of February and ends at the beginning of March. So it began in September of 1915. Carter G. Woodson, a Harvard-trained historian, and Jesse E. Moreland, a minister, founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. I am saying Negro, despite the fact that it's an outdated term, because that was simply what it's called. Um, But I'll be referring to it as ASNLH. So the organization focused on researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans, essentially the blueprint for lost history. 
Um, also notably, Woodson is often credited as being the father of black history, which is pretty cool. So in 1926, ASNLH sponsored a National Black History Week. They chose the second week of February to correspond with um, President Lincoln and Frederick Douglass's birthday. By the 1960s, pardon, Black History Week had transformed into Black History Month across college campuses. However, it wasn't until 1976 that President Ford formally acknowledged Black History Month. Um, he stated that we needed to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every endeavor throughout our history. So each year there's a theme for Black History Month and this year the theme is black health and wellness. So in a nutshell, this month will examine how American healthcare has often underdeserved the African American community. Um, in addition to celebrating the legacy of black contributors, scholars, and practitioners in Western medicine. But also this year, Black History Month, specifically to the theme, will acknowledge other ways of knowing. Um, an example, birth workers, doulas, midwives, naturopaths, hoglas, etc. throughout the African dysphoria. So the theme will consider activities, rituals, and initiatives that black communities have done to be well. So that is essentially what Black History Month is. If you want to continue learning more throughout the month, again, follow at Lost History. Really pushing that agenda onto you. I hope you join. So it's time finally to talk about the first person that we will be highlighting for Black History Month. And her name is Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley. Slight trigger warning. It may seem slightly silly to state a trigger warning, but I'm hypersensitive, so I always appreciate a little forecasting of what I'm about to listen to. Elizabeth was raised as a slave, so due to that nature, there's a brief mention of abuse and sexual assault. However, the larger focus will be on her career as a seamstress and how she got there. So without further ado, let's begin. Elizabeth was born in February 1818. The exact date isn't known. Um, however, she was born in Dinwiddie. <laughs> Funny name, Dinwiddie County, Virginia. The circumstances of her birth were complex, yet not uncommon for the time. She was born into slavery, however, her birth father was a plantation owner, Colonel Armstrong Burnwell. While Burnwell's wife, Mary, was pregnant with the couple's tenth child, Burwell had also impregnated Aggie Hobbs, Elizabeth's mother. It is unknown how Aggie's pregnancy came to be, however, again, due to the time, it is likely that Elizabeth was the result of rape. Despite the fact that Burwell was her biological father, Elizabeth was born enslaved. Aggie's husband, George Hobb, raised Elizabeth as his own. Throughout her childhood, Elizabeth worked as an enslaved domestic servant. The Burwells allowed Peggy to read and write. Brief pause. Just want to point out how cruel and absurd this is, absolutely, that another person would need permission to exercise literacy, much less do anything else on their own. My interjection is now finished, continuing. Um, so the Burwells allowed Aggie to read and write, and also Aggie was allowed to sew clothes for the Burwells, and her seamstress skills are ones that she passed on to Elizabeth. Elizabeth recalls the trauma of growing up enslaved, citing specific beatings she received. Eventually, George Hobb, the man who raised her, was separated from her mother and her, which also wasn't a common during the time for families that were enslaved to be split up. By the time she was 14, she was sent to work for the Borwell's son in North Carolina. Upon this move, she notes brutal beatings and repeated rapes. One of the many rapes resulted in her son, George, who 
who was named after George Hobbes. Um, and I wanted to share this quote because I just found it so striking. Elizabeth stated, If my poor boy ever suffered any humili- humiliating pangs on account of birth, he could not blame his mother, for God knows that she did not wish to give him life. He must blame the edicts of, of that society which deemed it no crime to undermine the virtue of girls in my position. By 1842, she returned to Virginia. She began to work for the Garland family. And then in 1854, the Garlands declared bankruptcy. And then a year later, she moved to St. Louis, Missouri with her mother, Aggie, and the Garlands. The family intended to hire out Aggie, but Elizabeth refused, objecting, My mother, my poor aged mother, go among strangers to toil for a living? No, a thousand times no. She then um, instead offered to use her seamstress skills to make the Garlands money. Since the Garlands had connections to white society, um, the story goes that Elizabeth was soon taking dress orders from, quote, the best ladies in St. Louis. In 1850, James Keckley, a free black man, asked for Elizabeth's hand in marriage. She initially refused because she didn't want to wed as an enslaved woman because any future children she had would then be enslaved. However, she sought and desired her freedom, and so she asked Garland, her slave owner, if she could purchase herself and her son from Garland. And I, again, am going to interject, and, like, it's just so, like, anything I say will be, like, a horrible understatement, but, like, truly sickening, like, being owned by another person and I know I I feel like I sound like the guys who are like dude we live in a society and I'm not trying to be that person but genuinely imagine having to purchase yourself and your child from another person it's just like if that doesn't make your stomach like ache I don't I don't know it's just dare I say I feel like we I'm gonna sound like the biggest idiot but I truly feel like my teachers in like elementary school through high school respectfully over-normalized slavery. Like, they just swept it under the rug. Like, it was no problem. And it is a problem. <laughs> it was a problem. So, the more you know. If you didn't already know, slavery was a problem. Like, no shit. But, anyways. Um, so, Garland officially, or initially, sorry, officially and initially refused to let um, Elizabeth buy her and her son's freedom and he actually kind of tricked her by telling her that her and her son George could leave on a ferry and gave her a silver dollar for travel fares but this is why it's a trick. There was um, the recent compromise of 1850 which essentially like strengthened the Fugitive Slave Act so if Elizabeth and her son boarded the ferry and they were caught as fugitives um and not like officially freed she would then just be sent back to the garlands and would be a slave so essentially unless elizabeth was legally freed she would never have freedom so with discussion not sure to what extent or how those conversations passed garland eventually agreed to accept one thousand two hundred dollars for elizabeth and george and just to put this into perspective one thousand two hundred dollars in eighteen fifty is equivalent to forty two thousand eight hundred and ninety three dollars today, which was like that amount of money for a woman like Elizabeth, a black enslaved woman, would be incredibly hard to make. 
but she made it and she freed herself. Um, long story short, after that whole debacle, Elizabeth marries James Keckley, but after becoming free, she divorces James because she finds out that he's likely a fugitive and not a free man, which would get her into a sticky situation, so she left. In the spring of 1860, Elizabeth moved to Washington, D.C. Due to district laws, it was difficult for Elizabeth to establish herself. She had to prove she was a freed slave, a free person, which required getting a white person to vouch for her, and she also had to obtain a work permit. After that all was approved, Elizabeth reached out to a client who began uh, then connecting her with many prominent people, such as Verna Davis, who was the wife of a Mississippi senator and, yikes, the future Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. Vernia eventually left back to the South, but Elizabeth's network of clients had expanded by this point, so she was good with her and without her. Around this time, Lincoln was elected president. Leading up to his inauguration, Elizabeth was approached by her client, Margaret McLean. Margaret wanted a dress for the following Sunday, where she would then be joining the new president and the first lady at the Willard Hotel. This was short notice for Elizabeth, so she was a little stressed and was like, eh, I don't think I can do it. But Margaret then told Elizabeth, I have often heard you say that you would like to work for the ladies of the White House. Well, I have it in my power to obtain you this privilege. I know Mrs. Lincoln well, and if you shall make a dress for her, and you shall make a dress for her, provided you finish mine in time to wear it at dinner on Sunday. So Elizabeth got to work. It was like, <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate for me to compare it to like a Project Runway challenge. Like the stakes were different. The context was different. But like, that's what I see in my mind. Like it was grind time. And Elizabeth got the dress done by Sunday. And what Margaret had promised came true. So Margaret, as she said she would, recommended Elizabeth to the First Lady, Miss Mary Lincoln. Mary was actually already familiar, or at least vaguely familiar, with Elizabeth's work because Mary's St. Louis friends had mentioned Elizabeth here and there. Elizabeth really... She, <laughs> I wrote down in my notes, um, Elizabeth really was making all the ladies' dresses, styling them up well, making them look nice. Incredible. It really was incredible. She was an incredible woman. I just think it's so absurd that I wrote that, but I did, and I read it, and we're moving on. Elizabeth's relationship with the First Lady began with one dress at a time. It is noted that President Lincoln declared Mary to look charming and Elizabeth dresses, stating, Mrs. Keckley has met with great success. Mary employed Elizabeth. Over the time, or over the course of that spring, Elizabeth made about 16 dresses for the First Lady and continued her work into the fall. The relationship began as strictly business, however, in due time, the woman became confidants. When Willie Lincoln passed away, um, Mary's son, <laughs> Mary and Abe's son, if you didn't know, Willie, um, he passed away, and the woman became even closer in grief because by this time, Elizabeth's son, George, had also passed away. In her mourning, Mary requested Elizabeth to join on an extended trip to New York and Boston. Mary wrote to Abe, saying, A day or two since, I have had one of my severe attacks. If it had not been for Lizzie Keckley, I don't know what I should have done. By 1868, Elizabeth published Behind the Scenes of 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. It detailed her life story, again, from slavery all the way up to the White House, as the title suggests. But the book was, surprise, surprise, considered very controversial at the time of its publication. Ended up destroying the reputations of Mary and Elizabeth. 
well, I'm quoting from the White House History website, what I'm about to read, to give full credit to the White House History website. Um, the quote goes, by writing down the story of her enslavement, her intimate conversations with Washington's elite woman, and her relationship with Martin Lincoln, Keckley violated social norms of privacy, race, class, and gender. Although other formerly enslaved people like Frederick Douglass were wrote generally well-received memoirs during the same time period, Keckley's was more divisive. So there's a lot of controversy. And Elizabeth responded to the scandal by saying, If I have betrayed confidence in anything I have published, it has been to place Mrs. Lincoln in a better light before the world. A breach of trust, if breach it can be called, of this kind is always excusable. My own character, as well the character as Mrs. Lincoln, is at stake since I have been intimately associated with the lady in the most eventful periods of her life. I have been a confidant, and if evil charges are laid at her door, they they also must be laid at mine, since I have been a party to all her movements. To defend myself, I must defend the lady that I have served. The world have judged Mrs. Lincoln by the facts which float upon the surface, and through her and through her partially judge me, and the only way to convince them that wrong was not mediated is to explain the motives that acuted us. So, at the time, the memoir was not received well, but today it is regarded as essential to understanding one of the nation's most misunderstood first ladies. Yet, at the time of release, as possibly to be expected, Mary Lincoln felt betrayed by the memoir due to its intimate details, and it is rumored that Albert Lincoln, marrying Abe's son, helped to suppress copies from selling. It was the end of their long friendship. Elizabeth's customers dwindled. However, despite that, Elizabeth continued her career by training black seamstresses and passing on her knowledge, as her mother did to her. In 1892, Elizabeth became the head of Wilberforce's Wilberforce. I'm sorry. I don't know. I love that name, Wilberforce. She became the head of Wilberforce University's Department of Sewing, Domestic Science, and Arts. And then, after all of that, Elizabeth passed away in 1907 at age 89. When I reflect on Elizabeth's life and legacy, I am acknowledging a woman who demanded freedom and found that through the means of fashion. She was able to build a career for herself. Even, which was even more notable due to the discrimination and unjust circumstances of the time. She became the dressmaker and close friend of the First Lady, and despite their falling out, her dresses remain and are now in museums. From slavery to an established skillful seamstress, Elizabeth Hobb Keckley was quite the woman. So that's all I have for you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you join next week and next time. And Just thank you for listening. I hope you have a lovely day, night, evening, afternoon, whatever it may be. Okay, take care. See you soon.